a Radio 191 FM podcast. Mr. Speaker. sound uh, I'll never get I'll never get sick of hearing that dildo smash him in the face uh, it's Radio 191 FM it's uh, 33 minutes past 8 on a Monday morning that means it's time for politics I'm joined by uh, John and Jeffrey again Morena to you both good morning John and Jamie how are we doing today chaps not too bad not too bad yep, yeah was getting into Eric Andre during the weekend oh god <laughs> <laughs> But you had an exciting weekend, John. I did. I did. Yeah. And I caught the Jamaican curry, so getting back to my roots, nice. Jamaican roots. Did it freak you out a little bit, Eric Andre, when old mate got kicked in the face? You see that episode? Flavor Flav. Yeah. Yeah, apparently Flavor Flav uh, tweeted later saying that, yeah, it's the way they edited the shot. But yeah, <laughs> Sure, sure. Anyway, uh, we better talk about, um, you know, he delivers the gags. Uh, mm. Has Labour delivered in the year of delivery? Uh, at the start of the year, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern declared that 2019 would be a year of delivery with the key areas being climate change, housing, mental health uh, and, of course, the recommendations um, from the tax working group. But have they delivered? Um, but I guess before we get on to that, we'll have a look at just quickly the changes to KiwiBuild. Um, what's going on there? What, what changes have been announced, John? Okay, so the original plan of, of um, building 100,000 new, 100, new houses has been scrapped. Um, the government um, is now uh, effectively admitting defeat on that, that they uh, overestimated what they could achieve in a 10-year period, and it had become a huge embarrassment for the government, so they needed to, to drop it fast. Um, some were predicting Megan Woods, the new housing minister, uh, would be more of a left-wing um, um, minister in the government. She comes from the Alliance and from Jamantin's coalition, uh, so she has more of a firm left-wing background. But um, these proposals certainly don't indicate anything radical or left-wing. They're, they're certainly... Um, uh, the new scheme they have, uh, where the government's going to help with mortgages and where um, uh, potential buyers only have to have a 5% deposit, will certainly allow a whole range of people to enter into the housing market. So there's no doubt about that. However, um, and there's also a, a, a rent-to-buy scheme, uh, which comes from the Greens to quite a um, degree, uh, which uh, is aimed at 4,000 buyers. We're not, we're not talking about big numbers there, but the problem for the government is that, yes, it's putting in place some mechanisms for increasing home ownership, um, certainly not to the degree of the original Kiwi Build plan, but the problem is unless you increase supply, if you're, if you're putting in mechanisms to increase demand, allow people maybe such as all of us here to enter into the housing market but there's not a, a huge increase or significant increase in the housing stock then that has the danger of further pushing prices up and that's the problem we need a massive housing build in New Zealand and, and none of the political parties are proposing that yeah, and that was one of the arguments uh, for Kiwi Build was that even if you didn't get a Kiwi Build house um, it would be beneficial to you if you're at mm. a home uh, if you're looking to buy a home, uh, because the supply would be increased and that would keep a, a lid on prices. You know that was the the great theory of it, 
of it all that you would just build so many new houses. Um, the other thing is the government uh, promised to cut migration by tens of thousands, which would, uh, I guess, keep a put a lid on the demand side of things. But net migration, if anything, has gone up slightly. It's around 55,000 each year. So. Um, all of this means that you know you're probably not going to see the same effects that we promised with the original Kiwi Build plan. So the name has been kept, uh, but it's a very very different plan now to, to what was promised. Essentially, it's making it easy for first home buyers uh, with with things like the five percent deposit uh, for mortgages and loosening up some eligibility criteria. But as John says, that's likely just to to you know increase the the demand increase the prices for, for houses and there's no uh, corresponding uh, increase in supply. So it's giving the people the perception that perhaps they can get on the property market but there may not be the property for them to buy. Um, you know, did I th did the government rely a little bit too much on the private sector when it comes to Kiwi Bill? Absolutely. It was, uh, it, was, it, was like a, uh, it was meant to be like magic that somehow the government was going to significantly increase the housing stock by using the private market and with their um, being no cost effectively to the government at all and by magic we were going to have a hundred thousand houses surprise surprise that didn't work mm -hmm. um, but I think we've got a we've got a question that the motives of the government here the government knows and, and Grant Robertson as Minister of Finance knows that if, if they massively increase the housing stock that's going to lead to deflation that's going to lead, lead to a drop in prices of houses and for all those uh, people who have invested in housing as an income source you know like uh, they have houses and flats for rent yeah. um, whether they're just um, like my parents do for example uh, their house is subdivided into three flats I rent one guy at the front rents another so they're making some income from that but then there's other people who have substantial investment in housing they're going to lose out and, and this government is scared I would argue to actually um, uh, to actually um, deflate the housing um, market because they know that that sector of the um, society that benefits from rental properties are going to be very angry indeed and there will be a backlash. This is another perception thing though right because house prices have increased 150% in the last decade and so at the moment you know you've got Auckland where it's dropped 8% in the last year but that's 8% on 150%. Mm. You know, mm. I mean, so you know, they might be crying a little bit foul, but they're still making a mint. Mm. But it would also mean if they if they're significantly increasing the housing stock and also providing more state houses, that means that uh, rental prices would drop overall uh, because there's a greater supply. Um, so again, that's going to hurt that uh, sector of society who have invested in housing uh, to make money. Uh, and I think this government's just way too cautious and upsetting uh, certain business interests, corporate interests, uh, etc. I think yields are way too high on rents, but you know that's just me. <laughs> it's because of rent. Uh, anyway, I mean, so I mean, there there are some big differences here. Um, what are we hearing from industry commentators, Jeffrey? Do we know anything? Well, the reaction to the changes uh, was, was pretty universally negative uh, from across the spectrum. I mean, the government tried to sell this as a as a reset. And that was mm. their spin line. Was was you know, um, you know, we're we're clearing the decks and uh, we're admitting that it didn't work. And now we're pushing forward. We've got some great new ideas uh, to increase uh, home ownership for for first home buyers. Um, 
you, you know, the, the commentariat really isn't buying it. Um, a business journalist, Bernard Hickey, he wrote uh, quite a savaging column saying that younger uh, renters got double toasted, uh, uh, were his words. And he said that the Kiwi Bill reset meant that Arden is, uh, quote, just another transactional smile and wave politician who believes she is better at wielding the status quo than the other lot. She has now forfeited any right she had to talk about being transformational and claiming ownership of a generation's dream. Uh, on the left, um, the government cheerleaders like uh, the Labour blog site, Labour Align blog site, uh, The Standard, uh, hasn't even posted about Kiwi Bill. <laughs> They've posted about the National Rifle Association in the US and Trump and Brexit and all kinds of other things, but they've just sort of ignored this uh, but uh, the comment and the comments are some of the Labour base are not happy um, and the left wing blogger No Right Turn who's fairly influential in, in the, the online political world in New Zealand uh, he was very critical now this is a, a supporter of the left um, he wrote some stuff that I can't really repeat on air with uh, the language <laughs> in it um, but he said it's like climate change it's just another one of the, the Labour government's broken uh, promises and he said that the government wants to preserve uh, its and its friends' wealth, wealth, even if it means locking out an entire generation of out-of-home ownership for good and creating an English-style hereditary class structure. Um, so, you know, he, he said that uh, the Kiwi Bill changes will, if anything, will make things worse by pumping money into the housing market, preventing prices from dropping, essentially what John's been saying. Um, and, you know, he, he's very unhappy with it. Um, but the government does have some uh, support. Uh, Mike Hosking said the changes yeah. were, were common sense. Yay. And uh, he's happy with them. So that's perhaps an indication of, of who's going to like this, the, the changes to, to, to Kiwi Bill. Is this going to do enough in the short term, perhaps, to get them over the line for next year? Um, because if it doesn't... I mean, this is going to be perfect ammo for National heading into the next election. Mm. Yeah, because it, it was uh, one of the, the major reasons that Labour uh, got into power was on the basis of its housing policy. Um, the National key government uh, had denied there was a housing crisis at all. Mm. Um, Labour kept pushing that issue that, yes, there is a housing crisis, and it, uh, it repeated statistic after statistic in terms of um, people who were living in cars, whole families living in cars, homelessness, um, the problems with getting um, rental properties if you're on a low-paid job or a student, etc. And I, I think it, it won the war in that term, that mm -hmm. even now National now admits that there is a housing crisis. Um, so the problem for Labour is that it, it needs to deliver um, and it, it's not seen as delivering, unless it comes up with a concrete plan saying this is what we'll do in our second term. So yeah, that, that could definitely get them through that um, the government can say well, um, uh, we can't change the world in three years um, but if you give us another go this is what we'll do. But we would need to see concrete policies, and even if they give some quite good concrete policies, I guess now the general electorate will be suspicious. Can they actually carry through these policies, especially when Kiwi Build has failed? Mm. Let's have a look at some of the other things they were trying to achieve. I guess, I mean, um, you've got the mental health package. Mm. Oh, your mother was very happy about that one. Um, a zero carbon bill. Not Are too we following my mum on Facebook? Uh, no, she came in here and talked <laughs> on the radio. <laughs> uh, and uh, the other one, well, another one that your mum was very happy about was uh, family care at home. 
Mm. uh, Pay increases for people uh, that look after their loved ones with disabilities. Yeah, I think the government is is delivering um, to a degree on a whole number of areas. Uh, um, so, um, yeah, mental health. Um, it's got, a, a, you know, it's, it's giving millions of dollars uh, targeting mental health, and also um, with um, free lunches in a select number of schools. Um, however, what it needs to do is it needs to present this as a start, and that this is something that it's going to build upon. Um, if it, if it just sticks with um, the, the, the very small number of schools that's going to give um, free lunches to, then it, it will just be seen as token. And the same with the mental um, health crisis. If it doesn't build beyond its uh, initial increase in spending, then it will just be seen as token. Of course, uh, I, I saw Paula Bennett uh, arguing, well, this isn't enough money, this is token. But of course, uh, <laughs> that's rather hypocritical coming from the National Party where, where it did underfund uh, mental health services and health in general. Um, but yeah, the question is, is this just a start or is is this purely just token? And I guess we'll have to wait and see. You talk a lot about transformational government. I mean, that was Labour's platform, but, you know, is this just the reality, Jeff, or, uh, Jeffrey, of uh, a coalition government? I mean, this is, you know, as good as it's going to get if we keep going down, if we stick with EBNP. Yeah, well, that's one of the arguments from, um, I guess, Labour supporters is that, you know, Labour would be more bold if it weren't for the fact they were in a coalition with, with New Zealand First, essentially. I mean, Labour and the Greens are usually on the same page. The Greens want uh, more kind of left-wing change, but... Uh, New Zealand First and Winston Peters in particular act on a, as a break on this and there is some evidence uh, for this I mean if you look uh, for example last month the abortion referendum well, sorry the abortion changes uh, were announced and Winston Peters demanded uh, suddenly a referendum mm. and so that's an ex- a recent example of uh, Peters you know demanding um, you know, less radical change, if you like. Um, but if you look at the capital gains tax issue, which I think is one mm. of the most significant this year, remember uh, Jacinda Ardern ruled out uh, a capital gains tax or a CGT, um, and some people said, oh, well, this is, is New Zealand First doing. New Zealand First has just vetoed it. New Zealand First is a party of natural... It's a natural party of small business. Its constituents, you know, are often property investors, mum and dad investors own property, they're not going to go for a CGT and the government just doesn't have the numbers to put through a capital gains tax that was recommended um, by the tax working group that was headed by uh, Michael Cullen. Um, But, you know, this argument I think doesn't quite work because uh, Ardern, when she announced that they were backing down from uh, the CGT or they wouldn't wouldn't proceed with a a capital gains tax, she said that she would rule out uh, campaigning for a CGT as long as she was Prime Minister. Uh, so even beyond this term, uh, even if she's in government just with the Greens, say, let's term, uh, next term, uh, she would not progress ahead with the CGT. So that makes it sound to me more that you know she personally doesn't uh, believe in it or doesn't think it's politically palatable. I mean, mm. that was her argument was that, you know, we've gone up three elections, you know, pushing a, a capital gains tax and there's just not the support for it. Uh, but I, I think, you know, it, it is her decision, it's Ardern's decision, it's Labour's decision, they're not going to go ahead with that. And putting the blame at Winston Peters is, of course, politically quite convenient um, from a left-wing perspective, but I don't think it's it's, it's really true. Mm. And certainly not on that issue. Uh, of course, there are other issues where, you know, New Zealand First has acted as a break, and that, that's quite clear. Yeah, well, they're trying to, co- you know, it seems like they're going to try to cover the, all their basis, right? They're trying to do things for the working class, for mental health, 
but they're also with that and the budget responsibility rules they're trying to cover their business side of things as well mm. you know they're trying to play the game that key played really well you know he could go from the left to the right quite mm. easily and stay center but go head over there more money for beneficiaries head over here you know tax cuts for for businesses mm. i guess labor's problem is that they they from their point of view they promise way too much and they raise expectations way too high whereas key never did that mm. uh, he he always presented himself as a as a centrist uh, essentially keeping things as they are, but tweaks and changes here and there, and, and that worked. That you know, kept his popularity up, start slipping towards the end. But um, with Labour, it, it sort of transformed the language of politics, and I think that's where you could almost say Labour was radical. And that after decades and decades, where expectation has been so low, and where all the political parties essentially accepted this consensus that the role of government uh, wasn't for substantial change, that the era of big government, as Bill Clinton said, uh, is dead. Um, and, and Labour in New Zealand was one of the few social democratic parties in the Western world, if not the only social democratic party in the Western world, that suddenly said, no, big government is back, transform transformative changes back we're really going to substantially tackle issues of inequality and environmental degradation and and poverty etc etc so in that sense Labour was quite radical but in terms of delivering there's a big gap there yeah yeah they've gone some way but there's so much so much more to go but have they done enough well, these, it's interesting, these budget responsibility rules, uh, they don't come from New Zealand first, uh, and no. they're, they're very... <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> The very conservative rules, they come from the Greens and from Labour. And I think because both Labour and the Greens realise this perception that uh, maybe the nutty left-wingers that are, uh, are going to go for farmers and go, going to go for business elite, so these rules are there to reassure um, farming interests, elite interests, etc., that no, uh, Greens and Labour are economically responsible and, and accept uh, the framework of what goes for orthodox economics but there's that, that contradiction there that they were what they were promising the general electorate uh, was this huge transformation which would would necessitate big government a big bold government but then they're reassuring um, more conservative elements and corporate elements with these budget responsibility rules that uh, economically they'll be even more restrained than the previous key government so that contradiction could lead to this government's downfall. Could. 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 Um, should we move on to Robert Mugabe? He uh, died on Friday. Um, what a ride. What a ride from visionary leader uh, to um, brutal dictator in some regards. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's been crazy. Um, you know, just he was the man of the moment, honorary knighthood, you know, freed his people. Um, and then, yeah, oh. another failed revolution. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. What is his? What is his legacy? Or does he have two legacies? Um, I think there's, there's there's several different narratives over who and what was Robert Mugabe. So there's there's the one narrative that says that he started off good, he liberated his people, uh, he, he was a sensible, uh, well mannered leader, uh, and then he went bad, and he uh, wasn't prepared to give up power. He um, wasn't uh, didn't allow for any opposition etc etc um 
there's an alternative narrative that really he was bad to start off with. Uh, that the whole that yes, um, um, I think there'll be very few people that would say that um, the de- defeat of the white supremacist regime in, in, in Zimbabwe wasn't a good thing. Of course, it was a good thing. Uh, um, but the whole nature of how that transformation took place from a white su- supremacist regime and what was called Rhodesia to the coming about of an independence. Zimbabwe state, there were problems from the the go set in terms that it was a um, the forces that took power were were shaped very much in the form of an elite hierarchical armed force. Uh, there was no real sort of mass participatory democratic movement. Uh, um, so when Mugabe came to power right from the start, although he was incredibly conciliatory towards the minority white population and to the uh, previous British overlords, and that's one reason why there's that perspective that oh, he was a good guy from the start, because in Western circles, elite Western circles and throughout the world, he was seen as a good guy because he didn't suddenly take all the land off the, uh, off the white farmers in Zimbabwe. Uh, he agreed, even though he called himself a Marxist-Leninist and said he wanted a socialist economy. In fact, he was quite conservative with economic policies. Um, but one thing he did do right from the start was crush any opposition within the black population. Mm. Uh, and and um, it, there, there were brutal uh, massacres uh, of, um, of, of opposition leaders right from the start. But in Western liberal circles, that didn't really matter. What was important is that he was a moderate uh, leader that wasn't whipping up anti-white hatred. So my argument would be that, yeah, that the signs that he was going to be a dictator were right there from the start. Yeah. What, do you, what about you, uh, Jeffrey? Do you think he was corrupted by his own power, or he was already, you know, that, w- that was his plan all along? Well, I think with Mugabe, you have to also look at his, his, at his upbringing, and, um, you know, Mugabe was imprisoned for 10 years under the Ian Smith regime. His uh, four-year-old son... Uh, died while he was behind bars, and uh, Ian Smith, the uh, white you know, supremacist uh, leader of Rhodesia at the time, uh, d- denied him leave to to attend the funeral. Um, and you know, in, in a bit, in a, I, I guess a, a analogy would be a little bit like uh, you know, often you find sexual abusers were often themselves sexually abu- abused as children. And when you look at uh, you know the the life that he had had. Uh, before he became president uh, and the way he was treated and the way he saw the Ian Smith regime treating people when he got power himself, Mugabe, when he was in the position, you know, I guess underneath the surface, you know, these instincts were there uh, to crush opposition, to to not tolerate dissent. but if you look in the the 1980s, you know, um, John said, as John said, the you know he did crush the opposition and within the blacks uh, right from the start. But in terms of you know health, education, he did do some good things. Uh, literacy increased, immunisation rates increased, mm-hmm. um, and and you know there was a huge expansion of medical care, healthcare centres, and so on. But the price of this was a lot of debt, and uh, he got into debt essentially, uh, foreign debt. Um, trying to expand, you know, social 
social systems and then of course you know how do you pay for this this is when you know he really went off the rails didn't he and taking off uh, seizing the, the white farms and so on and it all sort of spiraled out of uh, control uh, from from there so you know he is a repulsive individual Mugabe and has you know a lot to answer for but um, it's like everyone I think you know it's a, a mixture of, of nature and nurture and um, you know he's a product of his of his of his times I think and Mugabe mm. as much as anything. It's going to be interesting to see where they're going to go now you know it was once the breadbasket of Africa mm. you know it was um, you know quite a, a well-off wealthy society well for the white people of, of, mm. of the country uh, and, and I guess it was too for the beginning of Mugabe's reign and then like you said he got into a lot of debt um, trying to bring in people for things for his people I guess um, and then with that came the confiscation of land and with that um, went away the skills mm. uh, for working that land and that just turned into a dust bowl anyway we've run out of time sorry chaps uh, thank you both for coming in this morning it's been a pleasure Thanks thank so you much. that was the Radio 191 FM podcast you can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found